Wednesday, November 24th, 2021. This is Messiah Matters number 365. Well, I'm back from ETS. My name is Caleb Haig. And I am not back from ETS because I never went. <laughs> I'm Rob Bannoff. <laughs> that was bad. Wow. Good one. <laughs> can tell you're really putting a lot of time and effort into the, this show, man. Well, I could just like, oh, <laughs> what am I going to say when it's my turn? Uh, I could just compose like a single line and use it every time. Here's the greatest part about this show today. We have enough content that we could just drop right in and we still wouldn't be done by the time we're our time is up which is great because it means that next week we will have something to talk about as well, well not only that we could talk all the way into next season <laughs> that is also true that is also true yeah that you know what that means that means i actually have to work on a on a new intro that's always oh. hard man should we should have ideas should we see if any of uh you know what people should do if, listeners if, i'll tell you what ideas. maybe you should get help with this from our listeners if you're a listener nine, season nine if you're a listener and you can recall it's a of wholeness any time <laughs> throughout the past what are we at nine years where there was something that we said that was really funny or really interesting that's short it's got to be within like a couple set you know like or flat out wrong like or, you just like <laughs> <laughs> something super heretical you just you just clip it for us and send it to me and i'll try to put it in the intro it'll be interesting <laughs> to see if anybody does that that's awesome oh uh, that's great all right well hey uh you can also give us a call 253-465-3205 it's 253-465-3205 and uh you can also shoot us an email chagatorresource.com chagatorresource.com yeah. and don't forget to subscribe please you are not subscribed go ahead and do it we just hit seven thousand subscribers okay you know what's so funny is that i'm like i can't you know i'm i'm a nostalgic person right i i kind of like i think back and like kind of savor moments you know and i remember you and i sitting i think we were at a table in baltimore with um dr richard averbeck right I remember, I know, I remember the exact table that we were sitting at. Yeah, going, I mean, it was like this big. Our back yeah. to the window. Yep, yep, yep. I can just, it's like I can go, wow. And to then think, man, that was like eight years ago. Is that, I mean, that was at the kind of towards the beginning. I want to say that was December or November of 2013. Right. I could, I could be wrong. Yeah. And also, I, by the way, I was wrong. You were, you were right, believe it or not. On which thing? Uh, it happens from time to from time. From time to time. When we did the, uh, when we did the, um, Hoff goes off music. It was show fifty-five. Well, what is it? What was I right about? You said it was in the early shows. It was in the first hundred shows, and I was like, no, nah, I think it was like two hundred or something. Oh, like that. how did you find? You found the clip of it. I have a clip of it. Yeah, <laughs> it, but we don't have any video of it. We only have audio of it. How is that? Oh, okay. Because I wanted to capture your the, your response. Because <laughs> you didn't, you like did not listen to it until. Anyway, okay. I could go back and see if I actually can find it, but I don't think we have that video. Anyway, I, we started, I enjoy these these little nostalgic do you know, moments. Do you know when we were, when we started recording video? Did, I don't know if people know this, but we used to only be a podcast. We didn't actually, and actually, we were getting. Yeah, I mean, the video is really what has t t it's really launched us because people love looking at Rob. Do you no, know they love looking at your mugs? At my mugs, yes. I think it was. I think it was show thirty-two <laughs> is when we started videotaping it was a total wreck <laughs> our show was so bad man it was if really you think bad it's a wreck now yeah if you think it's a wreck now just just go back and listen to some of those shows it was really bad we i mean we have tried a lot of different things there's there's the uh when we tried putting in commercials that was interesting there was also um oh when we tried to do a live call-in show and the first thing that the very first word that the caller said was the f word that was interesting as well i wasn't there that was when <laughs> that was my dad your, father, your dad was sitting in but I, we do have some man this is like a let's reflect on the past nine years as we go go into this season nine. yeah and there are but we did have some really and we and we interviewed people that we would never interview now staley <laughs> The convicted con con man who uh, who who conned people out of millions of dollars and now is out and and making another ministry. We he was on our show. Yeah, 
and then there was also uh, Dr. Michael Brown. Now, Brown was at ETS. I didn't say hi to him, but Brown was at ETS, as he usually is. And he delivered two papers, actually, I believe. Anyway, um, I, I wouldn't bring Brown back on this show th- for theological reasons. Yeah, well, and this stuff- uh, But I appreciate what he talked about, but still, this is one no, of the reasons I, I we don't have people on yeah. our show anymore. Yeah, well, we realize that as as we develop, and this is one thing that social media and the internet has done, is like it's brought, it's accelerated how soon we see what people really believe, like what they stand for and what they won't take a stand against, um, like what they kind of allow under and, and like the, yeah, and, that, and there's some disappointment in there, you know, and I think there's people who have been disappointed in us. Oh, of course. That's fine. You know, I mean. So, but we so, have, we've had good moments too, right? I mean, like, uh, let's see here. What's, let, let's think of a couple of the, of the key favorite mo. I'll tell you what, on the spot, let's do it. Three favorite moments that you can think of off the top of your head of the past nine years. I got them. I got, oh. I, I, we'll, let, we'll trade off and on. Okay. We'll trade off I'm, and on. Uh, my favorite moments. Favorite moment show. I think it was one sixty something. Uh, Brant Petrie interview. Oh, I would have. Number that's one. in what my top three. Yeah, that was great. That was a great discussion. That was a great yeah. discussion. Um, that was that was. I think probably our best show ever. Anything else? Now it's your turn. Um, <laughs> I would say the best moment is like when you heard the Off Goes Off song <laughs> for the first time. That was fun. That was a so good. That's time. not really content related yeah. scripturally, but it's <laughs> it was. I think I think also a, a second of mine would be uh, uh, doing all the research and then presenting research on Jim Barfield and the Copper Scroll Project because that was oh. just so ridiculous. That guy's still out trying to push that nonsense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got another one. I hear that. I hear that. Um, no, they all just kind of blur together <laughs> in terms of like, well, because you know, there's a flow of interaction with, with what is the hot topic at the time. Um, yeah, I, I would have to I, think of a third one. I think the Hoff goes off. That was a really fun moment. That was a really fun moment. Um. There's been a couple other really good ones. That, well, the one there was one where we went. There was a um, a certain I'm going to use scare quotes messianic rabbi who published an article about how Paul probably wrote Romans in Latin because it was to Italians, but he probably wrote you know in Malachi. Aramaic. To, what's that? Malachi. Yeah. The uh, the Italian <laughs> prophet we, Malachi. And we um, we went through it right. We went through that letter carefully or that that um article and pointed out and then i remember i mean i personally got like you're slandering like like all sorts of scary uh stuff i've received two death threats in my time in ministry and actually the reason that's on my mind is because i'm going to mention one of them in an upcoming article but i don't think i'm going to right now so there, I'm teasing okay. the articles. Okay, let's get let's <laughs> let's jump into it. Let's get let's get into it. What do you say? Oh, I forgot about our. How can I forget about our producers? Let's just bring up our producers right now for everybody. Thank you, producers. Thank you, producers. And and also, here's the thing: is I also recognize that we have not put any content in Messiah Matters More for a super long time, and we're going to do that. We're we're going to do that. In fact, I think what uh, we maybe what we'll do is I'll do a short recap of the ETS and some of the things that I learned and Rob and I can kind of talk about those things. Since um, I wasn't there, I'll be a really good conversation partner. Exactly. Huh? Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, we had a good time at ETS. But I could share my experience with my virtual SBL. Exactly. Exactly. So oh, we can't oh, so we, save we it. Can't. Save it. Yeah. Save it. We'll, we'll save it for those who are worthy. Um, okay. Let's jump in. We got some really interesting and fun stuff to talk about today. Uh, this one from the Crisco Kid, and he writes in from time to time. This one has an air of, mm, what shall I say? Is it he, Crisco like like the lard replacement? K-R-I-S-K-O. Crisco. Oh, not C-R-I-S-C-O. Remember like Crisco, it's like a fat. Right, right, right. A, a vat of lard. To, 
vat of lard. I think it's lard replacement. <laughs> oh my word! I don't it, think it's real. Anyway, lard. so so I, so this, I just it's not a good imagery, right? Exactly. <laughs> Either way, Chris. this this um oh hang on just a second. I'm so sorry. Before we jump into this, I I am just losing today. Um, Mary, I gave us a super chat. Weights and measures. You've been. It's her blessed. favorite. It's her favorite uh, clip. The weights and measures. She doesn't even have to tell. You she doesn't even have to tell us anymore. We just know. Um, okay, so uh, the Crisco kid has an air of dissatisfaction with Rob and I on this one. Now, as everyone who listens to this show on a semi-regular basis might probably know that we have actually come against Heiser, Michael Heiser, the revered, almost second Messiah, as many of his followers seem to tout him as. I mean, he, people really, really, like, they really like Heiser. Um, and I haven't come up with a name for people who follow Heiser, but but people who usually have a following that are so, like, on, on fire dedicated, usually I try to make names for, so maybe the Heiserites. Anyway, um... So we put out a video that said, look, everybody keeps saying that we misrepresented Heiser. And uh, but nobody has given us a reason or a way how we have represented misrepresented Heiser. So please, please tell us how we've misrepresented Heiser. Well, the Crisco kid has taken the challenge on and he is attempting to throw down the gauntlet here on this uh, on this show. This is what he says. Here is just one way. You misrepresented Heiser. He does not teach two Yodhe Vavhe's. He teaches that Yodhe Vavhe can take human form and still be the invisible Yodhe Vavhe in heaven. That is the standard Trinitarian view. Even you guys believe that, I hope. And Yodhe Vavhe rained down fire, quote, and Yodhe Vavhe rained down fire from Yodhe Vavhe out of heaven. Come on, Rob, you're a Hebrew scholar. Read the text and tell me how and why you see it differently. I just gave you one example, how you misrepresented Heiser, so at least apologize for that one. Okay, so the gauntlet now has been thrown by the Crisco kid. Caleb, you're good at performing like... Text like you'd be a good like if I were one of your kids listening to you read stories that would be really fun. Oh, I do voices. I, I, well, I can tell. That's my son says. I, can, can you read it? I say no. You got to read this story. But you do the voices. Yeah, that's right. I try to come up. And the fun thing about doing voices is you have to make them all different. So really, there's a lot of different fake accents that come into my portrayal of people. Anyway, that's nice. Maybe we should so have you, done. You you um you imbe- you took a text well, was that a that was not a voicemail right that was converted no that was text. a that, that was a text. youtube comment and actually maybe okay. we should have changed it to maybe something like irish i just gave you one one example you misrepresented heiser so now at least apologize for that one nice hey you've got that down all right so uh, uh rob okay. are you gonna be so apologizing there's two, today there's two what I, well let me make sure i'm on track two points that the Crisco kid yes. wants the Irish kid to. Crisco kid at this point. One is just the general concept. Heiser does not teach two Yahweh's. I'm going to say Yahweh not because I think that's the pronunciation. That's just what Heiser puts throughout his book. I've got I've got No no hang on just a second. Right wait, 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 so wait, 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 wait. Before we start this, I do want to say this. This is not so the Crisco kid is not the only person who has come up with this as a, as a rebuttal, we've had several people who have come and said, "No, no, no, Heiser does not does not teach two Yod Vaves." Okay, so this is a, and actually, we've had uh, several people also say it doesn't seem as though you've read his book because that's not what he teaches. And then we've had other people say, um, "Well, you just have to watch some of his videos." So, um, this is not a down on the on the Crisco kid. It was just the it was just the comment that was easy to read. So, okay. Right, yeah. Please, please uh, explain. from me. others as well. So this is not unique to here. So I, I'm, what I'm hearing is I have, two, I have a job that has two parts here. One is to say, does Heiser, what does Heiser teach about two Yahwehs? Right. If I can demonstrate that. And then B, address this passage from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, is so that, it, yeah. Is, yeah, that, and, is that it? 
Yeah, and it looks like our video froze. So let's give a uh, let's give just a moment here to see if uh, it comes back. Tell chat room, tell us if it comes back. Tell us when it comes back or refresh. I just want to make sure that we get this because this might be interfering. Yeah. Well, I suppose that we. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Okay. Let's keep going. Here's the thing: is that. Uh, yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Um. And I, I, I want to, I want to be very clear for our listeners. My understanding of Heiser has been very minimal compared to Rob's. Now, I've done some research. Um, I've done some research specifically on Heiser, especially Psalm eighty-two, because uh, of my disagreements. But really, I'm resting on Rob uh, for a lot of of the information that's coming out so from from this show at least go ahead rob tell us tell us your two your two expositions okay, so the, in in the unseen realms that's the book yeah um basically the beginning of chapter 17 i think he says um page number page 134 he writes the startling reality is that long before jesus in the new testament careful readers of the old testament would not have been troubled by the notion of essentially two yahweh's one invisible and in heaven, the other manifest on earth in a variety of visible forms, including that of a man. In some instances, the two Yahweh figures are found together in the same scene. Okay, that's but then chapter 18 is when he goes more into it. Um, make it, it says, its use in several passages, this is 141, makes it clear that the biblical writers conceived of two Yahwehs. I mean, that's it. And then, and, and at the end of the same chapter, he's got places where he tries to argue um, that there are two clearly separate Yahweh figures um, is, is apparent here. And then at the end, he says, um, you've now been exposed to its Old Testament roots. There are two Yahweh figures in the Old Testament thinking. And then he says, the New Testament writers repurposed the two Yahweh's theology in later uh, you uh, well in later chapters in the book. He's going to show how New Testament writers quote repurposed the two Yahweh's theology. Okay, hang on just a sec. Now I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second because I already know what the emails are going to say. They're going to say, "Oh no, no, Rob, you're taking this out of context." That's not what he meant. Okay, so well, he has he's referring to something called the. The two Yahweh's theology that was repurposed by the apostles, by the, what he calls the New Testament writers. What that means is, is that in the Old Testament, the apostles found some kind of stuff where there's two Yahweh's and they re, they said, you know, we can use this. <laughs> repurposed. Mm -hmm. What do you do when you repurpose? You go to an old barn and you say, you know what? Oh, there's boards here. I can take these boards off and, and go make a put cool them table for my house. Yeah, right, right. Okay. That's what repurpose means. This is, I, I would. This is why I tell people just to to stay away from from Heiser. There's so many things that are important in our life as a believer, and we have limited time. You know, I. This is. It's not helping people, in my view, which which I believe is my colleagues, including Caleb at Torah Resource, that we we advocate a, a pro Torah. Um, orientation to the revelation of the, of the scripture and all, uh, the whole Bible that is oriented to a uh, doctrines of grace hermeneutic. Um, and this, the idea that the apostles are find something in the old quote, old Testament that they're going to repurpose for the new. It it just reifies the wrong paradigm. That that's my view. The talking about two Yahweh's has no edification potentiality for the church. I, that's just my position. I, I, I know that sounds harsh to people. Okay, hang on just a sec. So we have a comment in the chat room. Somebody is pushing against you. I've listened to a lot of Heiser, and my understanding is that he is not saying there are two Yahweh's. He is saying there are two figures in Genesis referred to as Yahweh. So, so we is this a segue to that verse now? No, that's what somebody actually said. Okay, because that's a good segue to the Genesis passage. But I mean, what would if, you respond to that person? I would say, okay, let's let's look at the. That's why I'm saying. Let's look at. I have it on my computer here. Okay. It's Genesis 19. This is the verse that Crisco Kid cited. So I'm thinking that that's whoever typed that comment in. 
This is Uzi L is the person in the uh, in the chat room. Keep going. Oh, okay. So Genesis 19, I'll put it on my other screen because it's going to be weird for me to read it there. Okay. So the text that Crisco Kid mentions is Genesis 19.24. And uh, this is how it reads, first in Hebrew. Vadonai himtir al-Sodom v'al-Gmorah gafrit va'esh me'et Adonai min hashamayim. Okay, so it's the NASB. Then the Lord reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And so the question is, or the, the, the forced position is, the word, the tetragrammaton appears twice here in this passage. There you go. <laughs> Aha. <laughs> There's two of them. So I'm guessing. And what you have to understand is that what they read is that where it's me'et Adonai, as if that is somehow um, the same thing as min hashemayim, or that or that you take min hashemayim as you got to you got you got to translate you got to translate. Our audience is not from Hebrew. the heavens min hashemayim as modifying yotevafe. That it's the that the the imply the implication that's being set forth is that you have to read from heaven, meaning from or that, that it's modifying the Lord. So it's the Lord is in heaven, and that's not how that's not the the core Hebrew, and and it's even captured in the in the Greek. They didn't understand it that way. Okay, my my, and, my, my my roomie comes in and says, wouldn't the hermeneutic value be that this is an indicator that the ancient Israelites already had the framework for the Trinity and that it was an, a later innovation? It gives us an additional messianic expectation. I, I don't know. I don't know. The claim that, the claim that it sounded like, if I'm understanding Crisco Kidd's comment, is that when it says the Lord reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, is that there's two. Because the second one is out of heaven. But but it's the but out of heaven modifies the fire and brimstone. The from the Lord, and they're two completely different prepositions in the Hebrew, and they're from from the Lord and out of heaven. And it's captured exactly right in the Greek translation that, that it's the fire and it's the brimstone and fire that are coming from heaven but the fact that they are met adonai means that it's, this is just not a normal thing this is god's judgment right this is this is his purpose so here's the thing and i just want to i want to jump in here now once again i have not done nearly the research on heiser that that uh, rob has done i've done research on heiser's view of psalm 82 with that said, just to Jeff's comment, which Remind is, wouldn't the hermeneutic know. value be that this is an indicator that the ancient Israelites already had the framework for the Trinity? I would say, yes, the ancient Israelites did have a framework for the Trinity. There's no doubt about that. I see that throughout Scripture. There is no Trinitarian that I know of anywhere that would say that there are two yod there's no one who would say Christ is a second yod heh vav And I, I don't... Think I think your dad wrote an article on this like 20 years ago. Right. I and think, I, on right. The, less, the greater and the lesser... lesser yod heh vav Exactly. there was someone out... This was before Heiser got traction. You mean Arius? I mean, this has been going oh. on literally since the since the very first beginning of... of um, uh, of, of of Christianity now, real real quick, our um, our people say that we are continue to freeze. We will um uh, we'll, we'll download and then re-upload this uh, this video. So I apologize. And uh, what can you do? But anyway, the point is is that there's I I don't believe that you would have first of all that first of all you would never have someone in the uh, time of the Tanakh, who's writing the Torah, or writing the the prophetic books, say, "Oh yeah, there's two ya- there's two Yod-Heh-Vav-Hes in heaven." 
Or that it's a theology of the Old Testament. Or that it's a theology such. of the Old Testament. There's one God and one Yehovah. He- that's what Heiser's saying in his book. And this is, I mean, if you want to say, well, he didn't mean that, watch some of his videos. Well, this is his most popular publication, right. in my, I think. And and it was very, I mean, it's. It, he, he says it took years and years to write this. This is very, every word was carefully planned and gone through many editors. And the viewpoint here is that the New Testament writers repurpose an Old Testament theology called the two Yahweh theology from the Old Testament. And, and, but, but this is the thing. And, and yes. it's just, that, that to me, that I believe that that accurately represents what he is saying here. And, and otherwise, why and, would he write it? Right. And that's not, and, and my point is that that is that I, that, that idea has no edification for the body of Messiah. It's it's just, I mean, that's my stance. I, 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 I don't, I'm not trying to hurt people's feelings. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to, you know, I. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm with you. I, I, and what is more, I don't think that you could say, I don't think that you could say that the biblical writers of both the old and new Testament would in any way ever say that there was two yod Aves? I just don't believe that. I'm I'm sorry. I just don't think that that was in their their mind, and the reason why is from is from the very beginning. You have the notion that there is one God. The Shema was in the forefront of everyone's mind. We have one God, and and He rules all. Well, I don't. I uh, I've. I've actually been reading in his dissertation more recently than I've been reading in Unseen Realm. Although I've got Unseen Realm is marked up quite a bit in the margins, but and I think he does talk about it in the Unseen Realm. But in his dissertation, which is what almost 15, 20 years old now, um, he does say that the the Shema does not exclude the existence of these other gods. That there are other gods, and that it's what he calls Yahwehism, Yahweh onlyism. That in other words, for Israel, they were not to be idolaters, meaning idolaters, meaning that these are other gods that have statues associated with them. Israel was not to do that. Israel was to recognize the existence of these other gods, but to also realize that that Yahweh put a boundary around Israel and said, look, I appointed those nations to have those gods you follow me and that's his main claim so okay. which is another silly which is another silly point because hey, we, we so so jeff he calls Cla- it monolatry monolatry yeah. uh, jeff jeff clarifies here he says i'm not trying to be obtuse here but i i'm having difficulty understanding the difference between the doctrine of the trinity and heiser's framework that there were not two yahwehs but two figures well, addressed why not three yahwehs then why oh, not addre- three yahwehs? addressed as yahweh so to me, three. Yeah. I, so maybe my understanding of the Trinity is, uh, is lacking significantly, but I don't understand. I don't see the notion of two. I don't even see the notion of two figures within the Trinity. And what I mean by that is you can't separate father and son and, and father, son, Holy spirit. You can't separate them. In fact, there was a great, there was a whole, um, session on this at ETS that that you can't the only way that we are actually able to se- separate into any kind of figure or personhood is actually through experience and so God is Father Son and Holy Spirit so once again I mean and I understand what you're saying that there are that we see God show up in human form within the Tanakh but. It, the idea that there's two Yahwehs is not my, that's not my wording. That's, it seems to me from what, from what Rob has, has read out of the quotes, it seems to me that Heiser is using the term two Yahwehs. And to me, that is not Trinitarian theology. That's, I mean, and I, and once again, I could be. Well, what I think, what I think people will respond to, I just got to know it says my internet. Yeah, you froze weak. for a second. So, um, I think p- people in Heiser's defense, people will say, well, what he means is this is the worldview of the people of the time. 
And the, that Christian Trinitarianism builds off of that. And so the claim... So and, progressive and revelation. That, and that Heiser is in, a, is in a good way defending Christian doctrine against claims of like later rabbinic Judaism that say it's a heresy to say that, that or even Muslims who say God has no son, right? So I think there's people who will read Heiser as a helpful solution apologetically against, let's say, Orthodox Jews and and Muslim, uh, devoted Islamic uh, faith people, <laughs> Muslims, who have are making claims against Jesus as like an impossibility. Yeah, you, yeah, dismissive of the gospel claims. So I think there's, I think that's an area where Heiser's taken root as like a, a helpful in the apologetics of the gospel against more contemporary claims. And, but he, but he grounds his position in ancient near Eastern literary motifs about the heavens and, and the divine council. And, um, and then it, what, what he, I think he calls intertestamental period, you know, like between the end of the, the old Testament and before the new Testament, you have what we're, what were Jews doing at that time? Let, let me see. Let me see if I can be helpful here. The way what I hear you saying, and and correct me here if I'm wrong, but what I hear you saying is that what Heiser has said is that it, within the Old Testament writers, what they see is is two figures that are Yahweh, and therefore they, and once again, not necessarily affirming the name Yahweh, but just for ease of use. This is what he puts through. Right. Yeah. So what so they see two words? figures in the same text that are Yahweh, and therefore. You have almost a monolatry, but really it's two Yod, Yod Vaves, two Yahwehs in heaven. And then, and they're not thinking within Trinitarian terms. I'm now I'm reading between the lines a little bit. Heiser's saying they're not really, from what I understand you saying, Heiser's saying they're not really they're not really uh, understanding the Trinitarian motif. But then right. new, it doesn't but, seem like he's. And correct me if any of our listeners can correct me, but I don't think Heiser is saying. That the ancient Israelites' religious worldview was Trinitarian. He does, I don't right. see and, him and, making but that then, claim. Then we come. I the, see that him making the claim that they were monolaters. They they believed in all these gods, but in other words, they didn't they didn't trust in them, but they believed that they were real, and uh, that their god was real, and that they needed to be devoted only to their god and leave the nations be. Right. And well, and we we read the quote where he says that uh, the writer of Deuteronomy was certainly a monolatrist, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. His dissertation is uh, yeah. So, that the, so the ancient Israelites were monolatrists. So then the New Testament writers come. They take this idea of two Yahwehs in heaven. They take the idea of monolatry and they say, "How can we make this work? Let's borrow this uh, this understanding and we'll write it into the." And, and they essentially come up with, and maybe through progressive revelation, they come up with this idea of the Trinity. And this is what's written into the New Testament text. Is that is that how you are understanding this? Yeah, I I'm not I'm not as clear on how he, um, you know, how he would articulate the Trinity. I, I don't want to in 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 Heiser's de- in, in Heiser's defense. You know, a lot can change in a person's theology over 20 years. However, it seems to me from the little that I have heard, and granted, it is little. Between, because I have not read Heiser's dissertation, but if you take Heiser's dissertation and you take his Unseen Realms book and you put them together, now once again we're tw- we're fifteen twenty years apart from each other, and maybe there's some change in in theology. But if you take those two writings and you put them together, I it seems to me like what he's saying is he's not saying that there's a trinitarian view of the uh, of God within the Tanakh. What he's saying is there is a view of monolatry which is two yod Vavhes in heaven, and that this is what the, the writers of the Tanakh believed. It's not until you get to the New Testament that you have a, a view of the Trinity. That's how I'm hearing it. Now, I could be wrong once again, but that's how, if you put those two writings, and this is mainly addressing what Jeff has written, I think I, I understand where Jeff is coming from in the idea that it sounds like what, what Heiser is, what, what I hear Jeff saying in, the, in his comment is that, Heiser is attempting to um, is is attempting to explain the the uh, the the Trinity within the Tanakh, just as modern Trinitarians were would. But if we take 
if we take Heiser's dissertation and put it up next to the uh, his his work, I don't think that that's how you could take it. Clayton says, just invite Heiser on the show and ask him yourself. That wouldn't work for multiple reasons. For multiple reasons. Yeah, there's no, there's no, I, I think he's gone to every length to communicate his, his view. I mean, he's published several books. You know, he's got tons of YouTube videos. Um, frankly, one of the ones that are early on that I hit that really was like where he had a date for Jesus' birth right. based on um, models of, of the sky and stars and stuff like that. And, it, and I was looking at his reading. I'm like, man, this guy... This is, wow, really? Like, is he really going there? And, uh, but in, in my view, yeah, there's, I, I would see no value to having him uh, on the show or, or just. It, okay, let's move on. Yeah. Uh, because actually, Heiser has now taken up 20 minutes of time, which I thought was going to take five. Heiser! Anyway, um, so let's move on to Caden. Caden has written in, uh, and he has said, we're going to try to hit maybe two or three of these quick. Caden has written in, he says, I have been in recent debates about God's Torah, and a question regarding incest has piqued my interest. I have searched for an answer far and wide and have not come up with anything that rests with me. I recognize that God's Torah is eternal throughout all generations, Adam to today. And within this, I'm going to guess that uh, Caden also believes that the Torah was given to Adam. I'm going to guess that and correct me if I'm wrong on that. Something God declares as sin against his holiness cannot change. If he could, Yeshua's sacrifice would be in vain. I tend to hold to, the, to this view as well. That being said, what was God's Edenic plan for mankind in the garden regarding procreation. Additionally, with Adam, and again with Noah's family, did God back himself into a corner where commanding his people to sin through incest was the only form of repopulating his world? Okay, and he goes on to uh, reference Romans 5.13, why he doesn't think it works in this. Um, okay, so... Uh, Mike, I'm, I'm going to try to hit this quick. My my response to this, Caden, would be this. Um, as a man, uh, I, I can do certain things like uh, I can go to the temple and go into the temple just as women can. But one thing I can't do is um, take the Yom Kippur blood into the Holy of Holies. Now, there's another man who could do that, but I couldn't. Now, we're both men. We're both humans. Uh, we're both equally as valuable in the sight of God, I would, I would think. But the high priest is the only one who can go into the Holy of Holies. And the question is, why? Well, because there are specific parameters around that commandment. He has to be of a certain line. He has to be of a certain age. He has to have no blemishes, so on and so forth. So there's many different things that would disqualify me, starting with the fact that my parents are not the right parents for me to perform the action of walking into a space to perform an action. And uh, now there's actually a lot that could go into this because I'm going to make a statement that a lot of one Torah people will probably not like and that is get ready with your tomatoes and your rocks uh that is that uh you'll only hurt your own computer <laughs> exactly god has no. different commands for different people within some specific instances now the reason that people who hold to one torah as myself i hold to a one torah theology um what has been called pronomian recently one reason that uh, some people don't like that is because the, those who oppose one law theology and those who oppose pronomian theology would say, well, God has different commands for Gentiles than he does for Jews. We don't see that in any of the scriptures from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. But with that said, we do see different commands for uh, people in different instances. For instance... I'm never going to have to 
um, worry about the laws of nida, the of a woman becoming unclean through her m- monthly cycle. Why? Because I'm not a woman. So obviously those laws don't apply to me. Um, I'm never going to have to worry about the laws of walking into the Holy of Holies why, or the holy place for that matter. Why? Because I'm not a priest. Um, so, so all of this to say, we can see that there are specific instances where people have that, where one law would offend God's holiness if I did it, but would not offend God's holiness if another person did it. And so this is how I understand the idea of procreation when there was at the beginning, right? The command, the first commandment is be fruitful and multiply. Right. I mean, that's a commandment. Yep. Here, as a side issue, if you read, it's it John, uh, John Walton, Jim Walton, the guy who uh, does, uh, he's another, uh, I want to say Heiser-like kind of person. I mean, it's a, he's another person who has a PhD and is writing books of like using ancient Near Eastern literature to contextualize, to, to try to provide framework. And then you put the Bible in that framework and then it helps you understand the Bible better so-called right now i don't mean he agrees with with heiser i have no idea on that but he does this to genesis and he he says that adam was not a real person right that and this is a like in i mean and he probably was at ets i mean this guy oh dude there was a there was a a knockdown wait 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 wait. let me finish this okay and then you share and then you share walton argues that um adam was not the like like there was all sorts of humanity and that kind of he uh, says that Genesis doesn't really tell us where they came from. So that Adam and Eve were just represent like an initial family. Right. Uh, but there were other peoples already on the world like that. And so I think because um, and then it answers the question, well, who did Cain marry? Like who was Cain's wife? Right. And then who did Cain's son marry and stuff like that. And um, but of course, this is a this is also a problematic person who's knows the languages, you know. He knows Ugaritic and ancient Akkadian and Hittite literature, and then uses that and Egyptian, of course, ancient Egyptian texts, and tries to say, you know what, we're um, the bi- the world can really be as old as the geologists say, you know, billions of years or whatever. Um, and the Bible's not trying to teach us that. The Bible's just trying to teach us about how God selected certain people from among whether we evolved from pond scum or whatever. So it's, I mean, it's just another Jeff Young knows where I was going. I Go wasn't at it. the, I wasn't at the session, so I can't really what talk. Was it, what session? What, what was it? There was a session uh, that was a response panel to William Lane Craig's new book. And I wasn't there, so I can't really talk about it, but William Lane Craig uh, was defending Actually, I shouldn't talk about it because I don't actually know. But at one point, somebody stood up, pointed, you know, asked the question, are you a theistic, like, do you believe in theistic evolution? He wouldn't answer, which is actually smart on his. Jeff Young was there and Jeff told me all about it. And uh, he, his commentary would be much better than mine. Okay. Um, with that said, and uh, I do want to just follow up on this. I don't think that we can apply the same thing to Noah's family. Noah, Noah's family had his his daughters had husbands, right? I mean, the the idea of incest with their father. Now I might be getting mi- mixed up on who had a who had a spouse and no, who well, didn't. But well, that lot lot and his daughters, you mean? No, 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 oh, Noah. Mo- Okay, Noah's sons had do- had wives. Had wives, right. right, 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 right. But didn't, but okay, let's think about this. His, yeah, I'm thinking a lot of stutters. Never mind. I, okay. I, would, I would venture to say that Noah's wife, as well as his three daughters-in-law, were of the line of Shem. Or sorry, not a, a, of the line of Seth. I misspoke. Shaith, you have Shaith and, and Shem. They're two, they, Seth, not not of the sons of Cain and the daughters of Cain. Um, but we're not told. I mean, so that there are things that the Bible just doesn't tell us, you know. And so those are on a need-to-know basis. <laughs> okay, let's move on. 
we're trying to move quick here because we, can, we actually got a lot that we're supposed to get to. I don't think we're going to get to all of it. Kyle writes in. He says, hello, could I have receipts from for Rob's claim? Specifically, the claim about Judah the Prince writing the oral Torah or editing it orally and then repeating it. I think this would be helpful knowledge for my community. And go. That's awesome. I love that phrase. <laughs> Thank you, Kyle. Can I have receipts for that? <laughs> it's like it's like accounting terminology. So if he emails us, I can send a link that might be helpful. But basically, long story short, we have in the, I think, ninth, 10th century, we have uh, a famous rabbi from Babylon. So this is after the era of the Talmud, but before like all the medieval commentators like Rashi and Ramban, Rambam, et cetera. And his name is Sharira Gaon, Sharira Gaon. And he gets uh, letters from all over the world, the the Jewish diaspora, from Egypt, from North Africa, back to Babylon. And they're asking them questions. So these are Jewish communities that are like trying to live a halakhically disciplined life, you know, according to the rabbinic tradition. But they, they have questions. It's kind of like an early Robin Caleb show where people email questions. They write him letters and they say, hey, where, where did the Mishnah come from? Like, where is this? It's not in the Bible. A good question for today's internet, right? But this is over a thousand years ago. And, he, and we have two copies of his letter that were preserved in different cultural milieus. But, but they don't agree. One of one version of Sharira Gaon's letter says that uh, Yehuda Hanasi, that's Judah the Prince, actually wrote out the Mishnah, and the other version that comes down says that he composed it, but it was he composed it in his heart, like like as a a memorized composition, and then he taught that to other people and made sure they memorized it accurately. Ask Caleb about memorization. He he knows that, and then um, passed it on. And then only later, generations uh, down the line, was it actually written. So he, within rabbinic tradition itself, stemming from this epistle of Shari Rigaon, it's a split answer. However, when we if we look at Rambam, that is Moses Maimonides, in his commentary on the Oral Torah, uh, he or it's a, that's actually not a, it's kind of a commentary. It's, it's actually a recodification of the oral law. He, in his introduction, he talks about how all from Moses all the way down, it was the, the, uh, the what's called Torah Sheba Alpeh, oral Torah that is on the mouth, was transmitted exclusively from teacher to disciple, teacher, disciple, teacher, disciple, all the way down. And only occasionally, down that historical timeline, uh, individual rabbis could would write down little notes for themselves to help them memory, help them memorize, and help them learn the material. But those were only for personal use, and that they weren't preserved as scripture or anything like that. It was just like it was like you attended a lecture, you had your you made some little notes, and then those you know disappeared in history. So. Rambam's idea of the conception of the transmission of oral Torah over the generations has has a little bit of element of writing, but it's never the main deal. It's never authoritative. It's always personal notes of lecture attendees, basically. Then he says it all changes with what he says, uh, Rabbeinu HaKadosh, our holy rabbi, who is Judah the prince in his view. He, from Moses all the way down, it was oral. But because people were forgetting the Torah, now this is around the year 200, right, roughly. So this is over a century, almost a century and a half past the destruction of the temple. And Judah the prince living somewhere in Galilee, um, according to Rambam now, actually composed in a book um, and, and codified, made a, basically made a handbook of all the oral tradition, because it was being forgotten, because students were few, um, Israel was not in control anymore, there was no temple, and there was a, a threat of it being lost. 
And in the context of the threat of oral Torah being lost, that's how they're, um, that was the okay. That was the legitimation to do something new, to write it down, whereas it had been forbidden to make an official book of it uh, in all the prior generations back to Moses. So Rambam is the first medieval commentator that I know of that really hits hits it home the way I'm explaining it. Like this is his picture. Um, and, but to this day, you know, to this day, if you want to study oral Torah, you go, you go to a written text, right? I mean, even, even in the most ultra Orthodox, uh, insulated communities like Mesherim, right? Like, like, no, we, no outside, like sharp line between us and all other Israel, uh, Israelis, right. Or even other Jews. Like if you're not one of us, basically stay out of our neighborhoods and we don't, we don't pay taxes, right? We're, we actually are supported by the government and we don't fight in the military. Our study is more important than, than the soldiers, what the soldiers do, et cetera. They, even they, when they study Torah Shabal Pei, it's written, it's, it's printed, it's printed text right. of the Talmud. So, uh, and, and, and that's true all the way back to Rashi. So no matter what happened with Sharia Rigaon in the whatever ninth or 10th century, in the 11th century with Rashi in France, that's uh, Shlomo ben Yitzchak, right? Yitzchak, he, uh, he writes a commentary on the Babylonian Talmud and it's a text for him. It's a, he's not commenting on an oral text. He's commenting on a text that he has in manuscript in front of him. So it had already transitioned to, to, to a text, uh, word written word culture, even though it was still ideologically called Torah Shabal Pei, oral Torah. Okay. Sorry, that was a long. That was a really long explanation for for two receipts. Um, okay, thank you very much for that. Let's move on. I want to get to one last thing before we uh, before we say happy Thanksgiving to you, Brandon, who's in the chat room, says, "Will Christians be required to present sacrifices at the temple if it is rebuilt?" Um, yes. No more expansion on that. That is needed. Anyway, um, did Jews. Uh, we talked about that a little bit uh, two weeks ago. We'll talk about it again probably next week. But uh, I want to get to the second part of the question. The second part of the question is this. Did Jews in the diaspora all make it to Jerusalem to keep the appointed times and present sacrifices for sin? No, they did not. Uh, he goes on. How did they ignore the law of returning to Jerusalem three times a year with a clear conscience if they indeed did not return? Okay, this can be easily understood with several different uh, um, pieces of information. Number one. E.P. Sanders has uh, suggested, and I believe he is right, that in the uh, first century, at least, during the time of Jesus and the apostles, and of course Paul, um, that anyone who lived outside of the land of Israel proper, that is without, with outside of the boundaries of the uh, of Israel, did not they did not believe that that person needed a journey. They believed that the law of returning. Uh, to uh, the temple three times a year was only for the people within Israel. Now we can see this a couple of different ways. First of all, Paul leaves and goes outside of Jerusalem and he's gone for years. He doesn't come back. In fact, we see him um, say he wants to get back for uh, Shavuot, for the festival of Pentecost, but that would in, imply that he had missed the festival of Passover, which is a... a uh, a, one of the three a yeah. pilgrim pilgrimage feast. We also believe that Jesus or Yeshua was actually in Egypt for at least a year, if not two years when he was a child. I believe it was about two years. Well, and Paul, Paul teaches at Corinth, uh, Corinth for 18 months. Right. He, so there's a lot of different examples of this, but uh, let's Yeshua was in. There's uh, at least one uh, Hanukkah in there. Okay. So, <laughs> so Yeshua is in Egypt for at least a year, if not two, probably more like two. Most scholars believe it was two years, which means that it couldn't have been a sin for him not to go up. Because if it were a sin, then he wouldn't be spotless. So we know that, so right there it proves that if a person was outside of the land, they didn't have to travel to Jerusalem. And this was uh, within the, the, this was believed within 
all of uh, all of the first century, it seems to be. And Paul tells the Corinthians that uh, basically he tells them that they are to celebrate the feast. What feast is that? He's talking about Passover. He doesn't tell them to celebrate the feast by traveling to Jerusalem. It would have been four hundred about four hundred and fifty nautical miles if they went straight across the ocean, uh, across the sea to get there. And so the answer is no. People did not go up three times a year. Um, and actually, there is provision for if a person cannot make it. And then they are supposed to take the money that they would give for the sacrifice, and they're supposed to spend it on whatever they would like. And that seems to be within the land of Israel. So there's even provision for people who can't make it inside the land of Israel. Um, with that said, let's just real quickly go back. Will Christians be required to present sacrifices at the temple if it is rebuilt? Yes. And the reason why is because whether or not... Actually, I heard this first from a Christian scholar, and I agree with this. So I think that there are people within what I would consider mainstream evangelical Christianity who teach this. That is that the laws of purity still apply. We're all in a state of uncleanliness right now because there is no temple. But if a temple is rebuilt, and especially if the Messiah comes and rules from the temple, which I believe he will, then there will still be instituted clean and unclean. You'll have to be ritually clean to enter that temple. You can't be ritually unclean to, if you want to enter that temple. So number one is, is that we would have to have sacrifice just to be able to become ritually clean. Because everyone is affected by the, uh, the uncleanness of corpse defilement. And what do you have to do to become ritually clean from corpse defilement? The ashes of the red heifer. So at least at the very minimum, there has to be the ashes of the red heifer. It seems within Ezekiel and Zechariah and Jeremiah and Isaiah and, well, pretty much, yeah, uh, that there is sacrifices done by the prince. Now, uh, someone had written in and said something to the effect of, well, the prince couldn't be Christ because he gives sin sacrifices for himself. Yes, the sin sacrifice can also be translated purification offering. This would actually make a lot of sense, especially if everybody has corpse defilement, including the temple that is just built. Um, so it is my belief, and I know that this goes against mainstream evangelical and Christianity as a whole. It is my belief that there will be sacrifices in the temple again. I believe there will be all that the entire sacrificial system will be reinstituted and that it will be administered by Christ. I don't believe that there will be a high priest. I'm, I shouldn't say that the high priest will be Christ, but there will not be a high priest out besides Christ. Christ. And actually, interestingly, it doesn't seem as though we have priests working in the temple. At least there's no mention of them within the uh, prophetic text. So the question then would be, does the Messiah do all of it? That would be a whole lot. So I don't know. But I think that there will be, um, I, I, I do be, believe that there will be a, a temple and I do believe that the Messiah will reign from that temple. And I do believe that there will be a sacrificial system again, if nothing else, simply for uh, to administer clean, unclean ritual uh, purity. Okay. It's been another show, man. Sorry to everyone uh, who was live and the video kept skipping. I apologize for that. We're going to, um, I'm going to try to see if I have a clean video uh, recorded. And if so, then I will, uh, I will upload that. I will probably delete the one that's on YouTube and upload that. And so you'll see that in a little bit. All right. Anything else, Rob, before we go? Happy Thanksgiving to you, brother. You too. Happy Thanksgiving to you and yours and all all y'all out there yeah. who are celebrating Thanksgiving. Yeah. Happy uh, Thanksgiving to our chat room. And uh, thank you all for being a part of the show. We hope that this conversation has done at least one thing, and that is to glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Why? You know why. Because Messiah matters. Thank you.